Live from the center of the earth. Yo, welcome to my summer lair. I'm your host, Sammy Yunan, and I have a return. Uh, welcome guest. Welcome back, Alex. <laughs> hey, how how's, are you, man? How's it going? Welcome back to Toronto. It's going great. Always, always happy to be back. It's like a year, yearly tradition now. Yeah, well, actually, the last time you and I talked was for your documentary, 7852, mm-hmm. and we talked on May the 4th, Star Wars Day. That's right. And today is Alien Day. That's right. That's <laughs> Right, what so I think odds? you and I should do like a podcast, just like on like every nerd Christmas. <laughs> we'll, yeah. just, we'll just do like some sort of like nerd thing on that day. So that sounds that, wonderful, man. Mm-hmm. Anytime. So happy Alien Day! Of course, your and documentary you. is uh, it's now playing at Hot Docs. Mm-hmm. Your documentary is called Memory: The Origins of Alien. Can you just give us a little snapshot of what it's about? Because there's a lot yeah. of stuff in there, as much as there is in the actual. Original Ridley Scott alien. Yes, that's right. Well, it is, I mean, you know, in, in a nutshell, it is um, a mythological look at Ridley Scott's alien. So it's, uh, as the title implies, it's an origin story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a film that goes way, way back into the origins of alien, uh, not just with Dan O'Bannon and sort of how the idea, you know, started gestating back in 1971. Uh, but also the the Greek and Egyptian mythological roots. Of Represent, I'm Egyptian. Uh, there you go. Yo, that's right. So, yeah. yeah, that's a two for today. Alien that's and Egyptian. <laughs> yes. You're doing really well. Check, so check. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, so it's um, it's it's really a film that kind of looks at the extraordinary symbiosis that happened between O'Bannon, Giger, and and Ridley Scott. Um, it's it's uh, it's really a film essay, and I think it's something that's going to appeal to. Obviously, hardcore alien fans, but mm-hmm. also people who've never watched Alien. Yeah, I want to touch upon something you just said because your cultural imagination makes you the right person to do this documentary. You don't watch a lot of documentaries, you know what I'm right, saying? Right. Like you come out of more like um, I don't know what the word, classy paintings, and like you know what I mean. You go to mm-hmm. museums. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like and I watch a lot of movies. You know, I'm a, I'm a total f- total film film buff. But uh, but you're right. I don't watch a ton of documentaries. I watch really. I mean, I, I draw my inspiration mostly from fiction films, from comic books, from I mean, uh, I definitely art. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it. I love to go to museums. And those are the things that are, you touch upon in this documentary. Yes. Right, like the comic books, the painting of Francis Bacon. Yes. Right. So that's what I'm saying. Like you're the actual right person to kind of do this. You know what I mean? Because sometimes people would sometimes get a little um, kind of wrapped up in the alien uh, mythology yeah. itself or make a kind of like a DVD behind the scenes kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not what you know. And it's funny because when I started, uh, you know, working on this film, uh, the, the initial impulse was, you know, can we look at the chest burster scene and do something you know, in a way similar to what we did with 1752 with a sh- shower scene from Psycho. Mm-hmm. And, and I very quickly realized, you know, what you just mentioned, this, the, the fact that if you, if you do that, you're going to end up having a behind-the-scenes documentary. It's not... Like a DVD r- extra or something. Yeah, like. it's a completely different kind of scene. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I, you know, to me, what really made me realize that this was going to be a feature was this exploration of mythology... And very specifically, I think the spark was the story that Ridley Scott uh, showed H.R. Giger, a triptych by Francis Bacon mm-hmm. called Three Studies for Figures at the Base of a Crucifixion, which came out in 1944, which complete, completely revolutionized the art world. And what's absolutely fascinating about this triptych, it's at the, the Tate in, uh, in, in London, you, you can see the chest burster there. It's, it's, it's right there in front of you. But even though it is a scene of crucifixion, it is the Greek Furies. Uh, and, and this is a, a motif that kept 
you know, came back over and over and over in Francis Bacon's work. And, um, and that's just the kind of stuff that for me as a documentary filmmaker that intrigues me. I'm like, okay, is this just pure chance? Is this pure coincidence? Is there more to it than that? But so it sent me on the right path. And ultimately it, it led me to meet Diane O'Bannon, the widow of, mm -hmm. of Dan, who opened her extraordinary archives. Mm -hmm. uh, she actually, you know, became an executive producer on the, on the project along with Carmen Giger. And, uh, and so that's when we really, you know, realized that we actually had a film, you mm -hmm. know? And so, so, you know, hardcore fans will be able to see stuff from the O'Bannon and, and Giger archives that, you know, they've never seen before. Yeah. And so again, similar to your process where like you just said, you like, you go to museums, you're a classy dude, uh, you read comic books. I don't know about that, but I yeah. throw in classy. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll throw it in there. Just sure, there. sure. Uh, it's Alien Day, right? You can it is Alien Day. <laughs> so let's go with it. Yeah, sure. Um, it's a mixture of highbrow and lowbrow. I don't know if they necessarily yeah. saw that that way, but when you watch mm -hmm. your documentary, that's what's happening. Like, because you're talking about like EC Comics kind of thing, which is considered absolute like trash pulp back in the day mm -hmm. and then you have like francis bacon paintings which you just said is hanging in the tate you have to tuck in your shirt before you go to the tate that's right, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah you don't have to tuck in your shirt when you when you're a dc comic no that's, you don't uh, have to wear a shirt you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> right is that how you see it as well just the mixture of highbrow and lowbrow or was they were just Always. kind of like just taking just like francis bacon makes sense ec comics makes sense so we'll just take it and they didn't really necessarily see it that way yeah it's all it's all there i mean i you know i'm a huge i i look i i consume highbrow and lowbrow culture in in equal amounts mm -hmm. and i and i find you know i find wonderful things in both in in equal amounts as well you know i love 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 comic books mm -hmm. and um and it's you know it's it's amazing too that you look at you look at you know specifically dan o'bannon and the inspirations um, so there are two comics uh, that he actually cited as uh, direct inspirations. There's a 1951 comic from EC called Seeds of Jupiter. Uh, and there's a, an underground, you know, little known uh, comic from San Francisco, actually, uh, by Tim Boxall called Defiled. Uh, and in both of those, you can see a version of a chestburster of some kind. Mm -hmm. um, but it was also the films, the B-movies, you know, talk about, you know, lowbrow. Yes. The B-movies that he consumed, um, and you look at movies like Planet of Vampires, mm -hmm. Queen of Blood, or It, The Terror from Beyond Space. What's fascinating is that those movies are essentially alien. It is the basic plot of alien in B format. And it's almost like that story was kind of like hanging around and waiting for the right people mm -hmm. to, to, to essentially make an A movie. And look, Alien could have easily been been a, a B movie. Yeah. Uh, you know, he when you describe the plot to somebody, it sounds like it's oh, yeah. just a bunch of like a bunch of truck drivers in space basically. Yeah. Get hunted down by an alien and then we go home. Yeah, I, well, not only that, but, you know, like Roger Corman wanted to, to produce the film. Mm -hmm. And what's actually remarkable, I mean, if you, if you want to think about the, the, you know, Roger Corman, I think, played a major role in the sense that, you know, like, like Dan O'Bannon and Ron said, who worked on the story together, were broke at the time. I think if Roger Corman had said, you know, I'll make this for a million dollars, they would have signed yeah. on that line right away. But Roger Corman had enough vision in a way for them mm -hmm. and selfless vision to say you know what i think this is a bigger movie why don't you shop it around and if you don't find mm -hmm. a bigger budget come back to me and i'll make the picture i mean how 
classy and how cool is that yeah. of Roger Corman to do? Yeah, and I think that's why, like, when you actually watch the Ridley Scott movie, the opening uh, few minutes is just the shot of uh, just a long shot, basically, of the spaceship itself. Yeah, and that already puts you within like five minutes of notice that this is not a B movie. Totally right. Like you totally. see a lot more buttons and things are lighting up and yeah. tunnels and things like that. Like they build stuff, right? So you know, yeah. uh, they spend some sort of money on this. Yeah, I mean, as as Terry Rawlings, uh, the editor of the film, who very sadly passed away very recently, mm -hmm. uh, says, you know, because he's 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 in memory, and I got to interview him in London. You know, he said the film is, um, the film is in in in, in slow motion, uh, you know, and and they deliberately tried to to you know essentially discover in the editing room how 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 slow they could get away with mm -hmm. with with the audience and if you watch really the first 40 minutes of the film until the chest burster it's it's very very slowly paced that point was interesting to me because back to future is the same way he doesn't actually get into the time machine the delorean until about 30 mm. 35 minutes into the movie yeah but that's the whole pivotal thing and again it's the same thing with the alien creature itself the xenomorph is like mm -hmm. he's supposed to, he's the name of the the movie <laughs> right yes and but he doesn't show up until, like you said, 30, 40 minutes in. And I'm wondering if that's like some sort of filmmaking skill or something we've kind of lost or we don't appreciate or like. Oh, I mean, most definitely. I mean, look, I'm, I'm making a film on The Exorcist right now. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've uh, had many, 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 many conversations with uh, uh, William Friedkin. And and, you know, we, we've talked uh, at, at great length about the opening of The Exorcist, which is a, a 10 minute mood setter. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, he actually talks about the fact that nowadays um, probably, you know, studios would not greenlight something like this. I mean, back in the day, back in 70, <laughs> 73, mm -hmm. uh, he was questioned about it. The, the studio, you know, Warner Brothers just thought, why, why do you want to go to Iraq? Why do you want to why do you want to do this? What, mm -hmm. what does this bring to the story? Mm -hmm. But he talks about the value of this kind of slow burn of of setting this atmosphere, this mood of dread. And and, you know, and I think this to me displays a great deal of confidence towards the audience that, you know, you, you, you know, they're watching a film called The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you have a sense of where this is going. And just knowing that is enough, just like you're watching a film called Alien, uh, you know that this is where it's going towards. I mean, if you watch the poster where it says in space, no one can hear you scream. You know they're not gonna, you know, you're <laughs> not just gonna have uh, like a nice little dinner around yeah, the table, yeah. right? They're not gonna roast marshmallows on an open campfire. They're not. They're not. No, they're gonna get roasted themselves. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean that's also too like to go back then to connect the three like Back to the Future and Exorcist and Alien. I mean those are those are considered classics, and we keep returning to them. They've spawned sequels. They've spawned all kinds of things, and it's like it's part of our pop culture, Completely. like our lexicon. Completely. Yeah. Right, and it's interesting yeah. when you approach a craft like that to be that slow and that methodical, knowing, like it's almost like um, it's almost impressive in a way that Ridley Scott was able to kind of like not show the creature for thirty, forty minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it would have been like, here you go, ten minutes in, right? Well, like, I think that's th that's the mistake that that you know uh, that most uh, filmmakers uh, do nowadays is they show uh, they show too much, mm -hmm. you know. Although I would say in recent years, it's been really I, I've been really pleased, you know, looking at the horror genre in, in general and some of the you know newer filmmakers now deliberately pulling back. You know, I look at a movie like The Witch, which I think was yeah. absolutely fantastic. And it's it, it, it he's holding back so much, and and because of that, your um, your imagination goes there. But look, this is what Lovecraft 
does as well. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a huge fan of Lovecraft. Obviously, you talked about Alien. You have to talk about <laughs> Lovecraft. Yeah. But his prose, I think it's, you know, the way he describes th- things and makes you sort of makes your imagination go is it's almost like right on the periphery of of where the horror really lies mm-hmm. and it's and it's such an effective way to write a, a, a horror story because you don't have to show all you have to do is you know is make people imagine the worst mm-hmm. you know yeah and i mean people depending on the who they really are it's almost kind of like a rorschach test yeah. Right. They will yeah. either come up with the most horrific things. Completely. Right. Like you're an old lady. Where did you come up with? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like, you know, and so if you allow people to fill in the gaps, that's what really good filmmakers do. Mm-hmm. It just kind of like set a little mood, like you said, and it's off you go. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like, I mean, I, I don't mean to bring every conversation back to Star Wars, but, y- you know, you think about, I, you know, the line in the original Star Wars when when Obi-Wan tells Luke, um, your father and I fought in the Clone Wars. Mm hmm. You know, man, your mind goes there and you imagine what it is. And then mm-hmm. he, showed, he showed it as a Clone Wars. Yeah, Hellboy, the original you know? Hellboy with Del Toro. He had, they had a line where, like, we de- finally defeated Hitler in, like, 55 after the Occult Wars. Mm-hmm. And then they, they saw the character just walks off. I'm yeah. like, whoa, you can't drop that in there. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, but I, you know, but I think, again, like, I, I would argue that in Star Wars, you know, yeah. it, it would have been better left alone. Yeah. Right? Because you're, you're, it's, it's such a small thing. But you, you're, you, then you, the Clone Wars become what you want them to, to become. It's like the the space jockey, actually. In mm-hmm. fact, in, in Alien, the the space jockey, I think, uh, was so great as a mystery. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not I'm not a fan. I gotta say of I mean you know you look at Prometheus and you look at Covenant, they're very well made films, obviously. But I'm not a super fan of those films because I feel like uh, really the 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 space jockey is now an engineer in a suit and what I thought was this skeleton, this truly Lovecraftian uh, creature uh, that's sort of ossified to the chair mm-hmm. is actually just a suit. No, man. I like, yeah. like I didn't want to see that. So I, I think it's, it's really another one of those examples where I feel like this is the, 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 the kind of mystery that I think is better left alone. Personally. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. There's a scene in the original alien where um, after they discovered that Ash is a robot, uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> right, 40 <laughs> years later. Yeah. 40 years later, right? <laughs> um, there's a scene where he's, uh, his head is on the table and he's talking. Yeah. And uh, Ash says to them, he's saying to Ripley and to Lambert, it's like, you still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Mm-hmm. It's the perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. And Lambert responds, you admire it. And Ash says, I admire its purity, a survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. And that kind of encap- encapsulates, like, uh, like the, the way that the creature is. Like, people do admire it, but it just haven't been able, especially as the Alien franchise has gone along, they haven't been able to kind of tap back into what made it so good in the original one with Ridley Scott. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the very definition right there of the fear of the unknown. It is... You know, we're talking about a creature that is truly, fundamentally, completely alien. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't think like us. It doesn't, uh, you know, we can't relate in any way to it. We do not know and can't comprehend what its motivation is. I mean, how terrifying is that? Yeah, there's no remorse. You can't even reason with it. That's right. You can't reason with it. You can't talk to it. You can't communicate with it. Mm -hmm. It's just out to get you. 
and you, you've already touched upon a few things, which is comics, Francis Bacon, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. But for you, the the documentary itself, it forms on kind of like the symbiotic relationship between uh, Giger, Bannon, and Ridley Scott. Yeah. So this is this is also exploring like creation myth as well, because we have a lot of creation yes. myths, right? Yes. From Adam and Eve to like the idea of the muse totally. and stuff like that. Do you want to elaborate on that too? Because like how how our movies get made, like there's a big difference between Alien, Aliens, Alien Covenant, Prometheus, like to see the pr- evolution of those and the different people involved in it. You can see the different types of creativity. And like you said with Star Wars, it's not always the best creativity that's <laughs> or they're not always the best choices that get made. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is. I think every movie um, is uh, has its own sort of creation myth. But the, the one in Alien is particularly stunning in so many ways because I think you remove any of those three extraordinary artists and you don't have alien mm-hmm. you know? so so th- you know this this needed to happen and i think it it almost feels like it was faded because dune had to collapse in order for alien to become what it is mm-hmm. and and you know no matter you know what ha- what would have happened if 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 you know dan o'bannon and giger had gone on to make the film Without Ridley Scott, I don't think it would have been executed in the same way. Roger you Corman, know, for example, you mentioned. Yeah, right? like I mean, you know, that's exactly. And, 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 and um, you know, the chestburster scene as well, you know, there's a lot of serendipity in the making of it. So even Ridley, even with Ridley Scott at that point, so much could have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the scene itself, man, I mean, it's like you're dealing with a puppet on a stick. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and a bunch of, like, blood and, and cow entrails. And, like... This could have been completely ridiculous, but there were certain things that happened very serendipitously, very luckily, one would say, on the set that made it what it is. And then, of course, Terry Rawlings, it's such an extraordinary job editing. It's 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 edited to perfection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I mean, really, it's um, it's a movie that could have very easily not been a thing at all. And then when you consider, quite frankly, that audiences at the time were not ready for it. Uh, that this was a movie going completely against the grain of of the the cute, cuddly, friendly alien that uh, that the audiences were ready for. Um, it's it's really a miracle that it became uh, such a success. Yeah, I was trying to remember like watching this. I couldn't remember where Alien came into my life. I couldn't remember the first time I saw it or anything like that. But I I knew that even as a kid growing up and watching it, and then later on James Cameron's follow up Aliens, which was extraordinary too. Oh yeah, for sure. Those kind of aliens, uh, 2001, that resonated a lot more than like E.T., some of the more sanitized Mm -hmm. uh, aliens Mm -hmm. and kind of things like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And like they just come down and play keyboard. I'm like, what the hell is this? That's right. (laughs) That's right. You can't go back from chess burster to like, I'm going to play a keyboard now. I'm like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a different kind. And I think, you know, and again, you know, like case in point, you look at uh, another Lovecraftian film. The thing, uh, which came out in '82, obviously the same year as as ET, and and you know that your audiences embraced ET and rejected the thing mm-hmm. completely. So um, it's it's very interesting. But I but I will argue that the reason why Alien became what it is is that it expressed, well, it taps into myth, and it expressed ideas and images that resonated with uh, with audiences on an unconscious level. The thing, as Lovecraftian and phenomenal as it is, I absolutely adore that movie. Mm -hmm. It is more of a, it's really more of a straightforward genre film. It doesn't tap into myth in the way that Alien does. And I think that's why audiences 
again, it's all unconscious, mm -hmm. you know, the reaction to the film, but collectively, and I'm talking here about our collective unconscious, I'm not talking about individuals, collectively, we embraced Alien, not really completely understanding why, and I think here we are 40 years later, and we're still trying to understand why, why did we embrace that film? Oh, okay, okay, maybe this is why, and it's, um, it's really, it's a rare film that we need to celebrate, and this is the year, because it's the 40th anniversary, and we we are you know extraordinarily lucky to have it. It's a it's a it's a milestone. Yeah, I think part of it too is that is the fact that it came out in '79, so it hinges on that turning into 1980, right? We're getting closer to 1984 yeah. now, right? So there's a lot yeah. of that ominous. And the de 70s had just finished, and it would that 70s of course had followed after all the 60s and MLK and JFK had been shot, like. So there was a lot of healing. There was a lot of turbulence. There was trying to, everyone was trying to figure things out. And we saw this with The Matrix, which came out in 99. That's right. Right? And it's the yeah. same thing. It's on a hinge point again. And it's we, something we continue to go back to The Matrix. And we have a lot of memes and red pilling and all these kind of phrases and stuff yeah, that yeah. pull out of it. Right? Like, yeah. I think when those movies come out in, like, the 79, 99, like, one of those special years, <laughs> I think it's like you said, like, it taps into that unconscious because there's a lot of fear, a lot of trepidation of the unknown, which is what horror is. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, it was it was it was strangely enough, it was the wrong movie at the time. But uh, in retrospect, it was the exact yes. right movie at the right time mm -hmm. to come out. So, do you find Alien? Do you find it sci-fi horror or horror sci-fi? Ooh, that's a great question. Uh, it's horror sci-fi. I uh, to me, to me, Alien is really about about our fears. Um, more than it is. Well, I don't know. It's that's a that's a toss up, man. Because it's <laughs> it's really both. Mm -hmm. It's really both in a profound way, uh, and that's what makes it so so brilliant. Um, it's just I almost want to not think of it as a genre movie. It's just uh, just a damn great movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so you've mentioned uh, the the three, obviously Dan O'Bannon, uh, Giger, mm -hmm. and uh, Ridley Scott, and those are obviously the creators of the franchise, but it's weird because over time, Ripley or Sigourney Weaver is the one kind of being associated with it. She's been kind of the face of the franchise. Yep. Has that surprised you then that Sigourney Weaver and Ripley would become the face? No, I mean, she is, um, I think she is the kind of uh, female character that, I, I, you know, I think we would all hopefully like to see more of today. Uh, you know, I, and I think there's a, there's a, a huge difference between you know, a, a female lead who kicks ass mm -hmm. and, and, and one like Ripley, you know, I, I, people, you know, we talk a lot about Wonder Woman and we talk a lot about, uh, Furiosa in, in Mad Max. I look at Mad Max and I'm like, okay, well sure. Furiosa is a stronger character than Mad Max himself in mm -hmm. the movie, but I still don't think she's really well developed, mm -hmm. you know, like she doesn't satisfy me as, as a character. I think what makes Ripley so great is that she, is really strong in the choices that she makes and the obstacles she has to overcome in order to, quite frankly, become the protagonist of the film. She doesn't start that way at all, you know. And and I and I do real I do connect her in some way to um, to Marion Crane, the Janet Lee character in, in Psycho. Uh, I, you know, I, we don't talk about about Marion Crane a whole lot. Because of course she gets killed in the shower brutally <laughs> forty five minutes into the film. Yeah. But this is this is a, f a female lead who a, a, a character that we we get to really truly care about who is in love with this man, uh, who is who makes the extraordinary decision completely out of character to steal forty thousand dollars to be with him, 
to drive in the rain and get to the Bates Motel and stay in the motel by herself, which, by the way, is not something that women w- would do uh, back in 1960. Mm-hmm. And then after this extraordinary parlor scene with Norman, she decides, I'm going to go ahead. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going down the wrong path. I'm going to return the money and face the consequences. What an extraordinary character. You know, and so so to me, it's not like, you know, strong female characters that kick ass. Wonderful. Great. But give me give me those characters that are, you know, really fleshed out, really developed, that have to make interesting decisions. Those to me are the great ones. And I don't think there's enough today still. And I think that's why we still look up to Ripley as 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 an extraordinary, revolutionary uh, uh, character in, in movies. And it's interesting because in your documentary, I, I think it was there was a note from Dan O'Bannon. He said like these characters are all unisex, all yeah, of the characters. I know, right? That's, that's a great irony of it. Um, which would have been crazy too because it's like that means Ash would have potentially been a female, like a female yeah. robot, like that was yeah. like working for the company. That's a weird <laughs> twist too, right? Like his some because we don't see a lot of like quote unquote evil female type robot like that, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And yet he turns out to be this very, um, uh, you know weirdly patriarchal awful mm-hmm. figure uh that you know basically also tries to penetrate you know with the magazine mm-hmm. to forcibly uh violate uh, ripley mm-hmm. um and that's the last act that he does you know <laughs> so so yeah i mean that's the thing that i i you know uh, walter hill and david gallard you know they did some rewrites eventually ridley scott went back really to to the screenplay by Dan O'Bannon and, and Ron she said, but their contribution was to um, uh, to turn you know ultimately Ripley and Lambert into uh, into female characters, and and I mean that's a it's very important uh, contribution. So you mentioned already a couple of people in the film. Can you just give us a breakdown? You have a number of really cool and interesting people in the documentary, including Roger Corman himself makes an appearance. You had a really cool uh, title thing for him. You call him the Pope of Pop Cinema? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is that his title or your title? Or? Uh, no, it's it's sort of an, I mean, you know, it's an uh, enough, uh, unofficial title that he has, mm-hmm. which I thought, I'm like, you know, uh, what are you going to put? You know, just producer of, of a gazillion movies uh, or, you know, director or producer of uh, mm-hmm. such and such. I felt like, you know, no, he's the Pope. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, he deserve it. Yeah, because as soon as he shows up on the screen, you start smiling, right? Because of all the yeah, yeah, all the cheese and stuff and all the fun he's unleashed over the years. So, yes. Roger Corman, who else do you have in the documentary? You have a cool list. Uh, yeah, we have a cool list. We have uh, Tom Skerritt. We have uh, who was in original Alien? Yeah, who was Captain Dallas? We have Veronica Cartwright, who was uh, Lambert. Mm-hmm. Um, we have um, well Terry Rawlings that we talked about, uh, the editor Roger Christian, the art director. Ivor Powell, who was uh, really uh, sort of, you know, Ridley's right-hand uh, person and very close friend. Uh, we have Ron Chusette, uh, who um, really helped Dan O'Bannon with the story. That in itself is a nice little, wonderful, really touching, moving subplot. Uh, we have Diane O'Bannon, uh, who is so um, wonderful and still, you know, f- so in love with Dan. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he passed away five years ago and... You can tell every time he she talks about him, she's so moved. You know, she's so moved. Um, and it speaks uh, to his character as well. Like he yeah. obviously was like, um, I never really read any like Dan O'Bannon interviews or anything like this. Like, kind of going into your documentary, and it's like the way she speaks about him is obviously he was this really bright personality. Like he had a big yeah. effect on her and yeah. from other people. What based on what you're saying and what they're saying in the documentary. 
Yeah, well, and, and but you know, she's also uh, you know very straightforward and says, you know, he wasn't easy. You know, he was he was uh, he was very angry a mm -hmm. lot of the time. He wasn't you know he had a lot of enemies. He mm -hmm. uh, he was not an easy guy to deal with, but clearly they had an, an extraordinary you know beautiful love story and relationship and and um and then you know and then we have a number of really interesting um quote-unquote scholars but entertaining scholars and 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 uh a phenomenal mythologist will lynn and that's where to me the sort of the meat of the story really uh really is you know sort of did this deep dive into uh into the the roots of, of Alien. And then we have also Tim Boxall, who did the comic uh, mm -hmm. Defiled uh, from 1971 that uh, Dan O'Bannon actually quoted as a direct uh, influence. We have Carl Zimmer, uh, who is an expert on parasites, uh, who has written numerous books uh, on, on parasites and who breaks down the... Uh, uh, pretty gross, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, parasitic wasps and their influence also on uh, on the film. Uh, I mean, uh, just the fact that there's a million species, a million species mm -hmm. of parasitic wasps on this planet, uh, which makes them the the essentially the number one living organism on on Earth. It's kind of terrifying. That's the kind of world we live in, dude. Yeah, there was what was it? They they put their eggs in something else or whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, there's literally almost like a, a parasitic wasp for every <laughs> every living species out there. Yeah, they yeah. they manage to. There's so many different kinds, but they manage to to uh, you know to f to to find a the, you know a host. They're very specialized in in the, their host. You know the ones that they choose, and they they, they get to lay they lay their eggs inside them. The eggs grow, feed, uh, you know, from the nutrients, and then it essentially burst out like the, the chest burster. And, yeah, and know. you know whether the host lives or not, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, talk about talk about a creature that doesn't <laughs> give a damn. Yeah, that's uh, and the, that's a real <laughs> creature too. And that's a real creature. You don't yeah. have to look into uh, outer space for that. Yeah, there, yeah, there's a million species of them on this planet right now, that's bursting out of all these. Uh, insects and creatures yeah uh, it's just it's gross it's really gross man um you didn't get sigourney weaver in the documentary would you wanted to get her but I, I say both ways because like i could see like she's done so much with alien that she almost yeah. would want to have some sort of distance or like you know what i mean like yeah no I but mean, we at the same time like yeah no we tried numerous times and uh you know after uh, in fact right after we got into sundance you know we 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 went back to her and um, I, I think she thought about it and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not entirely clear on why she, she didn't, uh, that's what I'm saying. Like okay. I can see both ways where like, yeah, no, it's, I'm, I mean, I'm fine with it. You know, I mm -hmm. think, I think if the story had required her to be in it, mm -hmm. we would have obviously pursued her first. And if she had said no, then we would not have made the film, you know, but I think the film didn't completely need her as long as of course we have to talk about her mm -hmm. uh and as far as ridley goes we also tried you know i think his schedule was really difficult but we um, um uh, you know I, I think it would have been a very different kind of film because you know dan dan and giger obviously passed away to have ridley weigh in i think would have skewed the film yeah in, in a way so in retrospect i think it's better that he's not in it because it truly is a film essay about that a symbiotic relationship mm -hmm. um that said he's um you know he actually there were a couple of um executives from scott free who came to our, our premiere at sundance loved the film the next day ridley asked for for a link 
and um, you know, I, I I hear it's all good. He's he's very supportive. Well and done. So I hope I get to you know meet him mm-hmm. someday. Of course, you know, but yeah. I know he's. I mean, man, he is like on fire. He is still making. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many movies at a time. Yeah, he's he hasn't slowed down at all. Not at all. I mean, he's he's what eighty two now, something like that. It's mm-hmm. uh, very impressive, uh, uh, man. Yeah. And that's the thing too, like because you like you said, like on his end. Uh, some of this stuff was was unconscious, so it's kind of weird too. I don't know if you can always articulate. That's why I'm saying it's a creation myth because sometimes you make these choices and you're like the alien should do this or something like this or this is how the alien should look, and you don't actually know. There's no there's no metrics. There's no analytics. There's no reason for you to suggest that it should look like this or no. be like this. No, you know what I mean. Like giving uh, the uh, Francis Bacon painting to Giger, like. That seems kind of random. There's a lot of cool paintings out there and like cool stuff. Why would you give him Francis Bacon? You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean that's the thing is I think that it's almost like a lot of the key decisions this in this film seem to have been guided by something else. Uh, you know, the the Ivor Powell actually tells this really interesting story. You know, he was always he would always be the one sort of reading certain scripts for Ridley or before Ridley, you know, mm-hmm. would, would 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 read them. Ridley didn't like sci-fi. He wasn't into sci-fi at all. You know, Ivor was always the one trying to push sci-fi because he's a huge sci-fi, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, nerd. You mm-hmm. know, he, he loves sci-fi. But he said, for some reason, this one, Ridley said, I want to read it first. Why? Nobody knows, you know. Uh, you know, why was he attracted to the triptych by Francis Bacon? Why was it that when Dan O'Bannon showed him the 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 Necronomicon by by Giger specifically the painting called um, Necronom Four which is essentially the Xenomorph mm-hmm. uh, which existed prior to the movie uh, why is it that Ridley Scott looked at it and said instantly that's it this is this is it this is this is the monster and yeah. and and even though the the studio resisted that he kept saying nope that's it this is how we're gonna do it I mean it's um, he was the right guy. He was the perfect director to execute the vision that Dan O'Bannon had and, and the, the very dark dreams of, of, of Giger. The documentary now is playing at Hot Docs, but you also just recently sold it. Yeah, well, we, 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 have been, we had been working on the deal for, for, for quite some time, but uh, we did announce today that uh, it will be released in North America by uh, Screen Media and Legion M, mm-hmm. the fan-powered uh, company. And um, That's super know, exciting. Way to go. It's super cool. It's, uh, we love those guys, and um, you know, they've got big plans uh, you know, for, for theatrical uh, this, this summer, and I think it's all going to launch with um, some, some pretty cool, crazy things at San Diego Comic-Con in July. So. Oh, right. Yeah. Does that mean you might be making an appearance at Comic-Con? Oh, I, yeah. I'm, I'm there. Trust mm-hmm. me, of course. Yeah. Are you going to do any cosplay? At, uh... <laughs> you, you will not see me as a, as a xenomorph. No, you, <laughs> you will not. That's a hard one because, I mean, I don't know if there was like – because there was an actual figure in the actual Alien movie back in the day. So I don't know if there was like a zipper in the front or whatever like – <laughs> to like, you know what I mean? Because cosplay yeah. is difficult that way. You still got to eat and like pee and y- sleep. You do, right? You do. Yeah. No, I mean, I uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll, I'll maybe I'll have a chest burster on my t-shirt. Ooh, yeah. Just squirt people blood everywhere you go. Yeah. I'm, sh- I'm sure you'll be a big hit. So something, you know? <laughs> yeah, so <that's> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get slapped in the face a few times. <laughs> it's know. fine. Yeah, it's okay. All right, that's cool. Thanks again for coming in. So yeah, so Thanks, uh, memory, the origin of Alien is now playing at Hot Docs, and as you said. Uh, keep an eye on it. It'll probably be floating around this summer uh, with the uh, re-release of Alien as well. I know there's also some plans as well to kind of get Alien 
uh, back in the cinemas. I think it's getting re-released. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. I'm sure. I'm sure Fox have their own plans, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're we're here to here to support them. So. Mm-hmm. This is a tangent, but now that uh, Fox is under Disney, are you expecting them to kind of revisit Alien and kind of like put more resources into it? Are you hoping that it does something with it now? Yeah, no, they've they've actually announced that that uh, you know they're they're going to you know continue the franchise. I mean, you know, look, if they're going to buy Fox, they might they might as well put that money to good use. You mm-hmm. know, I think it would be it would be silly not to. Um, yeah, I, I'm curious to see where where he goes. Uh, I mean, there's still obviously the rumored, uh, you know, Ridley Scott, you know, next Alien film. Um, I, you know, there's a part of me that sort of hopes that someday we'll see, we'll see a Star Wars Alien mashup. You know, Ooh. kind of envision like something about like just a bunch of Sith going on mm-hmm. on, on a planetoid and getting infected by aliens. <laughs> I mean, how weird and cool would that be? Yeah, yeah. They've yeah. been talking about... I know there's a small but growing fan base for, like, another Alien vs. Predator movie, but do it, like, properly. So... Yeah. I mean, I look, I, it's funny because this is where I'm I, I'm not... For some reason, I'm not in line with most fans, and, and I apologize in advance, but I'm not a fan of Predator. I, I'm just not. I, I've never really uh, understood the appeal of that particular creature. Alien... Oh, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm there. Predator just doesn't do it for me. So Alien versus Predator really doesn't, yeah, that's not just not my jam, you know? Fair enough. And so the follow-up film after this, I know this one just came out, but the follow-up yeah. after this will be Exorcist, and yes. the one I'm dealing with the Exorcist. Yeah, and it's and it's uh, it's really a very different film. It's kind of a departure for us. Uh, it's It only has William Friedkin in it. Uh, and so it's really a deep dive. Um, you know, I mean, I got to interview him for five days mm-hmm. uh, on The Exorcist. So as you can imagine, we went pretty deep, and but it's the Exorcist through, through art, through classical music and opera and classic movies, and uh, so it's really about his process as a filmmaker, his philosophy of, of life. Um, it's uh, it's a very personal, very uh, very personal portrait of, of William Friedkin, and and I think it's going to be it's going to reveal a side of him that people are not familiar with at all. You find these fascinating, eh? Like the the seventy eight fifty two, the shower scene in Psycho was mm-hmm. your the earlier documentary. Mm-hmm. This one now is on the chest burster. You find these moments of pop culture, like because they happen, and I don't think we can yeah. fully articulate or grapple or understand just what we saw or what just happened. Well, and but it's also they find me, which is that's a weird thing. I mean, I, I I was not at all planning a film on The Exorcist. I was actually in, in Spain a couple of years ago, a year and a half at the Sitges Film Festival and I was having lunch with Gary Sherman who did you know Dead and Buried mm-hmm. and William Friedkin was a couple of tables behind me and he called me to, to his table he said you know hey Alex and I was like you know like internally pinching myself <laughs> like what the hell is going on here <laughs> and he said you know he said I've heard so much about your film just come you know come on over I want to tell you some stories about Hitch I'm like wow great so uh, so we joined him and and um, you know he he instantly gave me he took my phone he gave me his email address said, I want you to send me the film right away, I did he emailed me the next day absolutely loved it and he said when you're in LA, I want to buy you lunch. Oh, so, so you're getting free lunch out of it anyway. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, so I'm getting lunch. You know, so three weeks later I'm back in LA. I'm having lunch with William Friedkin and having this wonderful conversation. And then the conversation very quickly turns to The Exorcist. And, uh, you know, clearly he had an idea in mind. You know? mm-hmm. And it's funny because he never said, I want you to make a film. 
but he said it was it was very you know he's really he's really manipulative in the best possible way <laughs> he's like well you know if you if you wanted to have access to my archives mm-hmm. you know just let me know i'm like well what do you mean and he said <laughs> and he says well you know just just uh, why don't you read my autobiography and if you find an angle let me know <laughs> yeah you know and that's when I, you know, after reading the autobiography, I mean, I instantly sort of imagined it as that, as that sort of, you know, one-on-one deep dive. And, and, I, and I told him, I said, I want to use the Hitchcock-Truffaut model of interviews. Mm-hmm. But instead of going over your, your entire filmography, I just really want to focus on The Exorcist. And I want to do that over a series of interviews over a period of days. And he loved the ambition of it, and he instantly said yes. And so then I, I went to Northern California to prepare for it, and I actually uh, I, I watched The Exorcist <laughs> for 30 days every day. Wow. 30 days in a row, just taking notes. And um, I, I do not try this at home. <laughs> no, no. That's uh, not an easy one to get through. It is not an easy thing. But I'll tell you what. Every time I watched it, there was th- these new sort of layers that started coming to the surface and these new questions and and. So I had, you know, I don't know how many dozens of pages of questions for him. And then, of course, and then we started sitting down. And like, I think the f- very first day of interview, all we talked about was the, uh, the Iraq prologue. Mm-hmm. That's it for, th- for the whole day. Wow. Uh, so it's, um, yeah, I'm super excited about it. And, um, you know, I think, again, it's like I'm trying to, to go in different directions, you know, to keep, keep you know, uh, you know, pushing myself to do something new and different and uh you know just i gotta keep myself uh, on my toes you know mm-hmm. and keep yourself off the streets too off the streets as well yes that <laughs> would be causing nice trouble too. yes yeah exactly well alex thank you again for uh memory the origin of aliens so as always I said, a pleasure uh that's playing at hot docs and we can look forward to that hopefully sometime in the summertime when it gets released and uh, maybe see you at Comic-Con uh, floating around. Yeah. Are you going? Uh, no, I'm not going this year. So you uh, got to do all the fun and like uh, see all the trailers and all the stuff. Just okay. let me know what's going on. I'll, s- I'll send you uh, pictures on Facebook. Yeah, that's it. Like, Because I'll be at home not wearing, not wearing pants. So then, <laughs> uh, it's the best of both worlds, right? <laughs> well, hopefully we're at least wear a shirt, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'll class and it try, up. Try I'm not as classy as you. Yeah, yeah. I'm not as classy as you. But I have in my your boxers, you know. Yeah, yeah. See, there you go. <laughs> thanks again, Alex. So hey, we'll have to do another one on another nerd holiday now that we've done Anytime. may the fourth that's right we're gonna uh, go down the list day. yeah we'll just keep going down the list so thank you cool thanks man yo that was fresh thanks for listening my name is sammy and and this has been another exciting episode of my summer layer you can follow me on twitter where i am sarcastic at my pal sammy facebook at my pal sammy where i am ironic and on instagram once again my pal sammy where i am witty or whatever passes for wit. Aliens, yo.